The reality is, is my anxiety makes me more prepared. I have a fear of being dehydrated. I always have water on me. And one time I was stuck in a subway underground for an hour and a half, and I had a nice big jug of cold water on me. Thank God. And so there's a piece of me that says, I'm grateful for my anxiety. And, and if I didn't have it, maybe I'd be not as prepared as I should be. So that's kind of how I look at it. You can make a friend out of your anxiety instead of making it an enemy. This approach to anxiety can help turn a lot of the fears and concerns that come along with anxiety into superpowers. Now, developing a friendly relationship with your anxiety might feel pretty counterintuitive. After all, anxiety can crush your confidence and make it feel like the world is closing in on you. Anxiety can drain your time, resources, and your well-being. So building a positive relationship with your anxiety is not bypassing or minimizing it. It's understanding anxiety is complex. We feel it in our bodies. We notice it in our thoughts and we see it impact our behaviors. Having compassion towards these responses help better understand the story anxiety is holding and support along with practice and presence help lead the anxiety instead of the anxiety leading you. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. So if we're going to make friends with our anxiety, we need to understand the story behind its fears and concerns. Anxiety always has a story. It has a mission to protect, and it does so in ways that can be crushing. Because anxiety is often debilitating, treating it requires specialized support and interventions. And yet for many, it is just a part of life, often not seen by the outside observer. Anxiety robs us of our presence, that space where we show up in our truth. So the hunt to figure out how to deal with anxiety is all too common for many. Now, this is not something that is simply done through a thought or a belief. We cannot power over anxiety and just think through solutions, as this only turns up the dial on anxiety. When you build a relationship with the parts of you that hold your anxiety, instead of trying to kill it or crush it, your life will be different and your ability to lead will feel different because you develop the ability to lead your anxiety instead of it leading you. You learn how to move through anxiety when it shows up. And my guest today did just that. He studied his anxiety, he befriended it, and he saw it as a way to feel his desire for lifelong growth and peak performance. He learned that the best way to protect his presence is to cultivate practices where he took the time and space to prepare. Chef Joel Gamerin is best known as the host for A&E's hit series, Scraps, and has become one of the nation's most well-known sustainability storytellers. Joel spent over 10 years as national chef for Sir La Table. In 2018, Joel released his book, Cooking Scrappy, inspiring home cooks to turn scraps into delicious meals, And this book is totally a family favorite. Joel also makes monthly appearances on NBC's Today Show, sharing his recipes and sustainability tips to a worldwide viewership. 
through entertainment, creativity, humility, and education, Joel brings people together with a common goal of getting good food on the table while being mindful of waste. Now, listen to Joel's why behind his commitment to presence and befriending anxiety. Take note of his radical acceptance of his nervous system and how he sees a scrappy mindset as a powerful leadership tool. And don't miss his story of navigating anxiety while live on national TV. You're in for a treat today. Yes, pun intended, as I welcome Chef Joel Gameron to the Unburdened Leader podcast. I am so excited to have a conversation with you today. Oh, thanks, Rebecca. And we've been chatting a lot, so I'm thrilled to kind of do this in, even virtually, but live. It's, it's a total pleasure to be here. Yes, definitely great to connect in this way. It's super meaningful. And I'm really, really excited for people to get to know you better and your story better. You are an incredible leader. And I, I, we're going to talk more about what you've been doing. But I, I want to start a little bit more, start off with a little more about your personal life. And you, you've shared in, in some interviews and things that have been written that you had difficult times at home that led you to cooking as a catalyst to connect with your family and to ease the conflict. So can you tell me about the day you decided that cooking was what you were going to be or what, the cooking was going to be the tool that you used to connect with your family? Mm, that's a great question, Rebecca. And yeah, so for me, um, cooking and food was always kind of just substance, right? It, growing mm. up, it was just it was just a way to have fuel. Um, and then around 15, 16, my parents separated. And I have three other siblings. So there's four of us. And we would have huge family dinners. My mom was definitely a Martha Stewart wannabe. And she would make amazing dishes. Every Sunday, we would have uh, it would be kind of a different place in the world. She would make sushi and Korean barbecue and enchiladas. And, and then when they got divorced, it all stopped, just stopped. And wow. uh, we all kind of just dispersed. Um, everyone, I remember eating a little bit in my room. And, and listen, I'm not blaming my parents. It was a very rough time on them. But I don't know, the sexiness of cooking kind of left the building. And uh, and I realized, man, I wasn't just getting calories from food. I was getting connection, warmth, and belonging with food and realized that to me was the essence of kind of who I am and my soul. And so I, I just thought I would experiment. So I remember I made cornbread from a jar. It was like a lid or a can. I remember opening up the lid, adding eggs and milk and baking the cornbread and putting it on the table. And all of a sudden, like, there's my sister, there's my brother, my mom came to the table and my dad wasn't living with us, but we, we were around the table and I realized food is sticky, you know, it's like honey to bees. And that was kind of the light bulb moment was that canned cornbread um, that if I create something, uh, I can bring people together. Wow. If I create something, I can bring people together. That's a powerful insight as a teenager. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit about how that unfurled. You had this hard stop in your family, a shift as, as a child of divorce myself too. And my parents were separated from when I was in seventh to ninth grade. And then the divorce was official in ninth. So high school was, and my mom then started dating my stepdad who lived out of state. So I had to do a lot of cooking on my own. And so I, I'm like listening to you talk and realizing that was one of the joyous things to cook and have all my friends come over because I had a house to myself. 
And so that's, that is powerful. And I love the word sticky, right? That's just that connection, that sticky connection. That's something that we're all, that we're all craving. So are there other things that prompted the desire for cooking? You mentioned, you know, your mom cooking all this amazing food. There was the hard stop. You were, you know, kind of eating in your room by yourself and then went, "Uh uh-uh, I want to bring this back. Tell me a little bit more what was prompting those desires. Yeah, I think a big part of it for me was also the outlet. Um, And so for some people that could be working out and for other people, it could be hiking a mountain or kayaking or whatever your shtick is, taking your bike for a ride. For me, it was needing go, right? And it was, I was a very competitive tennis player growing up and I would lose a match and I would just find myself making pizza. And I don't know why I was just there and I, I would I would lose time, you know, like before I knew it, you know, and the pizza wasn't even that great. I remember one pizza I made, I thought the salt, uh, the sugar was salt and it was like a dessert pizza and everyone just spit it out. But, you know, that's okay. And so for me, for me, I think, you know, I, um, the kitchen became a way of, of kind of zenning out and, and meditating a little bit. Um, and uh, and being more grounded because everything around me was changing. But I knew that if I whisked eggs with warm cream, that the eggs would get firm no matter what, and they'd become a custard. You know, I knew if I baked bread, it would build a crust and smell good. So there is something about the reliability of cooking to me that was comforting because I think everything around me was changing. If that makes sense. Oh my gosh! I'm just you, you created these certainty anchors through the science yeah. of food. Um, and I, and I just sitting here reflecting and especially with a lot of, I've been talking to a lot of my mom friends in the neighborhood and everyone's like, I'm so sick of cooking or cooking feels laborious or like a chore, um, or something that feels like a punishment. But for you, it was, it was therapy. It was love. It was community and it was grounding. I, that's, that's powerful. And that, that's probably what my family, why we connected so much with you and, and your work, we could see that love for food because mm. we, we feel that in our home because yeah. cooking, especially with my daughter, Hazel, who you just met before we started this show, um, we couldn't really leave the house. And and so cooking became something that we could do as a family and and became something that was an expression and a, and a way to to create and, a cat, and, a, and an outlet too. So... Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, I think that's a great point, Rebecca. And like, and I can see that in your family. And the fact that Hazel, who's 12 years old, is whipping up zucchini bread and bringing fresh pasta to her teachers is so cool. And, you know, I don't understand. And I I guess there is a part of me that does. Because at one point in my life, I did look at food as just a way to fuel my body. But I don't understand people who maybe don't value food and the power it has and where it's just fuel. And I'm surrounded by people like that. My dad kind of looks at food like that. He's a total meat and potatoes guy. My brother's like that. And so uh, it's hard for me to connect those dots because I think you're right. I think there's something extremely powerful about this thing that we all have to do every day, three times a day. And um, why not lean into it and, and kind of embrace it, right? And And maybe that's why, I don't know, I set out to inspire the world to cook, which is kind of my why. That's why I exist, is everything in my world needs to ladder back to that. If it doesn't inspire people to cook, I don't do it. It's just not something I do. So I think that there is a part of me that feels like, you know, maybe if someone was extremely overweight and they lost 200 pounds, they might set out to inspire people around fitness goals. That kind of feels like me with food is, you know, I like talking to people who don't look at food as sticky, magical, 
you know, uh, as this community builder, because to me, there's something about inspiring them that, that gets me up in the morning. That makes sense. It makes so much sense, especially af- after watching your show cooking scrappy. So it makes so much sense in watching your videos online. So, and I think, you know, that, that that's what draws people in. And so I'm really excited. I'm excited for people to hear this conversation and be exposed to your work. But one of the things I want to shift to a little bit is, you know, someone who's been, um, you know, you, you were the head chef for national chef for Sir Latab. And, and I mentioned the show Cooking Scrappy, which was on A&E, I think. Yeah, and it shifted yeah. networks, it's bounced around a little bit. Yeah. And so you've done all this upfront work, but you've also shared you've battled anxiety throughout your life. And that you even, I read you even had a big fear around public speaking. I had to pause and read that twice. Um, <laughs> but as someone who's worked with people with anxiety, anyone who suffers from anxiety knows that you develop mad skills to keep that struggle from being seen. So I'm wondering if you could tell me about a time when anxiety nearly kept you from speaking up publicly or about a time when anxiety got between you and the message you wanted to share. It's mm, another great question, Rebecca, and I'm loving this. And, and I think that everyone battles anxiety. And I think anxiety is something that's not talked enough about. Um, and no. it comes in many different forms and it's hard for us to put our finger on it. But when I was um, nine years old, I faked sick from school. Um, I remember it. I just didn't want to go, pretended I had a cough and I was in bed and I was watching a movie. My mom let me stay home and I was watching a movie. And I remember it was an action movie and the good guy was coming around the corner and all of a sudden my, my veins started to pulsate on my hand, this weird, and I couldn't breathe. And I was, my heart was just hurting and um, no one was home and I was hyperventilating and I was having a panic attack. I don't know why at nine years old, but I was. And it wasn't like I was stressed about anything. It was a kind of an intense part of the movie, but I was having a straight panic attack. I didn't know that's what it was. I thought it was a heart attack and I was dying. Um, and since then I've had a lot of those. And so I've had to change the way that I look at things. I don't drink caffeine, it triggers it. Um, I try and be really level-headed because otherwise it triggers it. Um, but what I don't do is avoid moments that bring anxiety. And for me, that was public speaking. Being Jewish, I had to go, I had a bar mitzvah at 13, which meant I had to lead a service in front of 200 people oh and give goodness. a speech and give a speech, which at 13 years old, terrifying. And that was peak anxiety, right? And so I was really scared I was going to hyperventilate in front of all my friends and family. So what I did is, is I practiced that speech until I couldn't see. Like I, it comforted me to just repeat, repeat, repeat and practice. And what I realized was is, and I gave a killer speech, but what I really realized was the power of um, being myself and authentic and, and, and starting to grow this comfort of presenting in class and then going to college and leading a team and getting up in front of everyone. And I realized that um, that was a piece was, was stage fright, but I got over it. And so there's lots of other pieces I challenge every single day. By the way, when I go on the Today Show in front of 4 million people, or when they say action on a cooking show, there's always butterflies still to this day. When I get on a plane and they shut the door, I, it, it's really hard for me. I'm really scared. You know, like when I, when I go on a subway in New York and I'm traveling to a meeting, it's intense. So it never goes away. Anxiety doesn't go away. Listen, when people call action and there's 4 million people watching or when I'm on an airplane or a subway and, you know, uh, the door closes and I'm underground or stuck up in the air, 
I still get anxiety. And I read a book, I've read lots of books about anxiety, talked to a lot of doctors. There's not a magic pill. There's not something you can do. There's absolutely, you know, things that can help reduce anxiety and the triggers of anxiety. Like I said, stop drinking caffeine, get good night's sleep, you know, try and kind of balance your work life. All those things matter and they help. But the question is, and that everyone has asked me is, do I want to stop anxiety? And let's just think about that for a sec. So I prep for the Today Show, I'm guessing two hours more than the average chef who is on Mm -hmm. the Today Show. Because I'm so scared of getting up there in front of 4 million people that I think about every inch of what I do. I go over it a million times. I write it out. I take pictures. I'll record myself. And I've been on the Today Show 70 times and it still doesn't right? But the reality is, is my anxiety makes me more prepared. You know, I have a fear of being dehydrated. I always have water on me. And one time I was stuck in a subway underground for an hour and a half, and I had a nice big jug of cold water on me. Thank God. And so there's a piece of me that says, I'm grateful for my anxiety. And and if I didn't have it, maybe I'd be not as prepared as I should be. So that's kind of how I look at it. It's interesting that you're approaching, because so many people look at anxiety because in a purest sense, you know, that that fight flight part yeah. is very it's protective, right? And then right. it gets distorted in in our modern world and, and adapts. And for you, you've befriended it and adapted to it and saying, okay, we're gonna be prepared. We're gonna, whether it's with water or practicing. I'm curious though, I mean, out of the 70 times you've been on today's show, for example. There's, I mean, you, you're a new father and we're living in a time of pandemic. So planning, what happens in the times when maybe you don't get all the planning in that you want? How do you navigate that? Or is that something that you are so rigid about and are able to structure? I mean, my sense is that's life happens and you can't always have that prep time. So how do you, yeah, what goes on? You know, how do you, when yeah. anxiety starts to creep up in those times that you don't feel as prepared? What do you say to yourself in those moments? You know, you can't predict everything and you're right on that. And so I think when you're in a moment where you get cut off guard, um, you need to go back to your breathing. You need to go back to your fundamentals. For me, it's meditation all the time. I I need to close my eyes and I need to kind of, you know, every single day I meet with my business manager and we do something called breathe. He hates it. He's sitting right next to me laughing. But But for three minutes before every single day, we shut off our computers and we're on mute and we breathe for three minutes. And because we don't know what the day is going to throw at us, but we do know that we'll stay grounded and we do know that we won't overpromise. And we do know that if we're going to commit to something that we'll be prepared for it. And so it's, you know, yes, things happen, but I will say 99% of the time I'm prepared and I spend my life preparing because it's not okay for me. I won't show up and I won't enjoy it and I won't do a good job if I if I didn't prepare for this call, Rebecca. So everything I do, I have at least a mental, I can wrap my head around it, you know, my cell phone's to the side, I am 100% present and I think that helps subside my anxiety. If something catches me off guard, I'm not gonna lie and say that I'm perfect. Um, but I do go back to the fundamentals of breathing, and, and kind of trying to stay as grounded as possible. So if I'm watching you on the Today Show and I just see you take a pause, I know you're That's having it. a moment. <laughs> totally. And I'll give you an example of that is I've been on the Today Show twice now, three times, where Hoda from, and at the time it was Kathy Lee and Hoda, 
she was I was teaching her how to chop a vegetable and she cut her finger on live oh. television. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't a bad cut, wasn't a bad cut, but blood was coming down her finger onto her arm and Kathy Lee was freaking out. And in my mind, I'm thinking, this is it. This is my career. You know, like there's blood everywhere. There's millions of people watching in America. I'm supposed to teach her knife skills and she just chopped her finger off. And so, you know, there is a moment there where anxiety creeps in and then you realize a couple things. One is vulnerability is power. And I talk about that a lot. You know, what would anyone do in that moment? Like they would freak out and lean into it. And, you know, just because 8 million or 4 million or 3 million people are watching doesn't mean I'm not going to act the way I would normally act. And the way I normally act is make sure she's calm, maybe joke about it. So she's joking about it, get her a Band-Aid and we're live on TV. And that's cool because you know what? Anyone can relate to that. So I think one of the biggest things to do is when you're feeling vulnerable, say something, lean into it and own it because people respect that. And and that's powerful because yeah. vul- vulnerability is something that obviously is, Brene Brown defines vulnerability yes. as risk, uncertainty, and emotional her. exposure. Me too, yeah. me too. Had the privilege of working with her and her organization for eight years oh, wow. and it's been wow. a game changer. Um doing being a facilitator of her work it's it's powerful and that that risk uncertainty and emotional exposure is activating to anxiety <laughs> it says totally. danger but what I, there's a couple that i'm here i mean breathe yes the neuroscience and biology of breath is like it's a game changer but i'm yeah. hearing you say like if if you were doing that same segment but the cameras weren't on the sense i guess that's exactly what you would have done too all right Let's, let's just, let's, let's, let's not take ourselves too seriously. Let's get you cleaned up. Let's get a bandaid and let's move forward. And so it's staying true to you. You know who you are, Joel. That's what I'm hearing is you, you're not performing. Uh, You're staying true to you. I I, I think you're right. And I think that's why I found success in this. And I think if anyone can stay true to themselves and whatever they do, whether you're a banker, whether you're a dad or a mom or a full-time physician, it doesn't matter. If you're staying true to who you are, then you know you're being the most authentic and doing the best at your moment and people relate to that and no one's judging you for that. But I think the second you get uh, off course, you feel inauthentic, people can sense it. Uh, You don't know how to react in the moment because you're off course. And, uh, and that's when anxiety and everything flares up, at least for me. And I can feel it in my gut. I don't know if you're the same, Rebecca, but I know oh, something yes. is not me. And that's when it's the worst. You know what I mean? It's the that's worst. It's I, worst. I want to take a shower. I want to go do a race, record, rewind <laughs> of that. And yeah. And, and, but it, it is amazing how reflexive it is to try and be who we think we should be. But yeah. I'm sensing too, you're drilling down. I, I, I don't know if I'm reading this right, but there's this sense that your preparation and your passion for excellence is not just <clears throat> an anti-anxiety approach. It's part of your core values. It's part of excellence. There, am, I, am I sensing that correctly? You're totally right. And not only that, I look at every moment and I know everyone's, you know, if you're listening to this, I am not perfect. I love spacing out watching Netflix. I love you know, just letting go, all that stuff. It's not like I sit around all day prepping for everything. But what I do do is um, I only take what I can handle. I pace it out. And I believe that every experience is bettering you. And so you Mm. should be extremely present in that moment. So for an example would be, 
if I was getting robbed, this has never happened, but I'll just give you an example. If I was getting robbed at gunpoint, you know, is that a moment where I can actually grow in that moment? Like, is that a moment where I can be present and say, there's a gun pointed at me right now. This might happen in the future or something this scary might happen in the future. It might happen with my kids and my, you know, and my wife. So is there a place for me right now to learn from this experience? I'm not going to freak out. I'm going to learn from it, right? I'm going to question the robber. I'm going to question my feelings and just be in it and soak in it. And as opposed to thinking I'm freaking out, this is insane. So like every experience, if I meet someone, if I miss a meeting, if I offend someone, if I, uh, you know, let someone down, if I make someone extremely excited, every experience goes towards me thinking I could be better at who I am. Um, the reality is it's, it's a never ending chase because I'll never be perfect. But mm -hmm. I do think if you can strive and be better out of everything you do, <laughs> it's, a, it's a cool way to live. It's, and it's a fulfilling way to live. And you really, right here, you really differentiate the difference of like excellence versus this strive for perfection, right? That mm. wanting to every moment. And it's, believe it or not, Joel, and I, I talked about this in a couple of shows briefly, but I actually went through a season where I was mugged three times, twice at gunpoint. Stop. And two, oh my two God. Of the, two of the times, and they were like in 18 months, two of the times I'm like negotiating with the guys with the guns. Like trying to befriend them and wow. um, like asking, they were asking for our driver's license. It was, this, that's a full, that's a whole show in itself. But I yeah. remember thinking, I want I need to build a relationship here. There's a human here. Yes. I'm aware yeah. of my friends with me. What can we do? And so that's interesting that we, when we're in those moments that literally are life and death or anxiety tells us are, we kind of go to those important defaults. And, and we, we see mm. what we're made of in those times. And, and so it's interesting how you then bring up this, this desire, like I want to grow versus I want to be perfect in everything. And I, I think mm. I love that differentiation as I work with so many people who are recovering from this plague of perfectionism. And as Brene's research, you know, defines it's really the, the, the first cousin of, of shame, right. Mm. Is, but, mm. but for you, you're driven to grow and to be better. And I'm hearing that that's what's exciting to you, not about pure safety. It's about mm. this growth. Through, and tell me more. Tell me if I'm landing on this right. And so and interesting. No, I've, I've, never, I've never heard it phrased that way, Rebecca, and I love it. There is a difference between perfection and growth. Yes. I, 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 I don't think perfect. Let's just do it in cooking terms since I'm a chef. I don't think there's a perfect way to cook chicken or make the most amazing dish. Um, but I think there's a way to kind of improve upon it each time. It will never be perfect. And so embracing the fact perfection is not a real thing, but growth is a real thing. And so um, and knowing that it, you know, perfection is stressful, right? And it, to your point, would you say it was the cousin of what? Because I've never heard that Bre before. Yeah, Brene's research really identifies that perfectionism is is kind of runs runs shotgun to shame is what she says. Uh, so I, it's, it's, I, I it's driven that. by shame. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's setting ourselves up for failure right? It's saying, it's the difference. I heard this study one time, my dad told me as I was having a kid, he was giving me dad advice, which was, you know, um, people, kids who take a test and they say uh, they're commended on their grade. Great job for getting an A as opposed to being commended on their work ethic. Uh, the ones that got an A burned out wow. faster and got commended on their grade. They burned out much faster than the people said, great job for working hard. Got it's not it. great job for an A. It's not great job for being perfect. Great job for the way that you tackled it. Keep tackling things like that. Um, and that's the, the difference. It's not about the A. It's the way 
you approach it. And that's what ultimately, does that make sense? I don't know if that relates. Yeah. And, but yes, cause then we're not, so we're not trying to check the box. Like for you, the cooking is the messy, the chopping, the, the yeah. dirtying of all of the cooking tools which the perfectionist parts of me sometimes I'm like, that's why I'm like, Hazel, <laughs> Hazel, clean while you're cooking. And she's just in the moment, right? My husband's the same way. Like the kitchen's a disaster, but what they make is amazing. And I, it's so easy to cut up into, oh my gosh, the kitchen looks like a mess or people wanting just the presentation. But yeah. it's it's all the, the story and the experience of what goes into it. And it's I such know. a beautiful metaphor for life too, versus it looks perfect. We're doing perfect. Everyone sees it's all external and there's no experience yeah. there. It's exhausting. It's really hard. It's really hard. I agree with you. And I get stuck in that. Just, I don't know about anyone else who's listening <laughs> and Rebecca, sure. but like, you know, I'll go on vacation and, you know, I am thinking about what we're doing tomorrow or I'm reflecting on what we did yesterday and I'm not really there at the monument we're looking at or the beach that we're laying on. And that's a problem, you know? And to me, that is whoever can crack that. And I know a lot of Buddhist monks are there and spend their lives doing it. But that's why I breathe every day is it's not because necessarily breathing chills me out. It's because I'm focusing just on the breath. And right now I'm focusing just on my conversation with you, Rebecca. I'm not anywhere else mentally. And I am not perfect at it. But I do think that is the essence of life is the more present we can be, the more our anxiety, and the more we can perform that and, and sometimes being present takes preparation. In fact, I think it always does. You know, when I go out to mm. dinner with friends, you will never, ever when you see me at dinner, ever see me on the phone. In fact, I put my phone away. Some people say mm. just just the moment of the phone being on the table brings up anxiety. So how can you force yourself? You're playing with your kid, you're cooking, you're running. It doesn't matter. How do you, and force is the wrong word, but how do you employ yourself to get better and better each time of being present of whatever you're doing? And that, if you can enjoy the moment, to your point, that's the win. But listen, none of us are perfect at it. I wish I was better and I'll continue to try and get better. Well, it's hard to do that well in a world that's fighting for our attention. Yeah. I mean, it, and, yeah. and we have to have a lot of boundaries around that. I'm just so struck by this this conversation around presence because often we talk about it as it's something that we check a box on, but right. it, this really is a life practice and that it's it's almost like a muscle we have to continually exercise to yes. be because you're present with your food, you're present with the people around you or the experience you're having. That is the work that is versus that and versus constantly worrying, what are people going to think? What's the next thing I'm going to do? And we're always not negotiating that. Everybody is. If you care, if you love, you're always negotiating those influences. But I just, the, the preparation piece, instead of a being a performance for others, it seems for you, and I'm so moved by this, it's, it's really an act of values. It's an act of how you want to lead your life. And that's, that's what's contagious, I think, about about you. At least that's been for me and my family. So this is this is really... That's really, really, you know, Rebecca, I've never heard it voiced back to me, but thank you for saying that. And that's a new reflection for me and I'm learning. And I think that's amazing. And I, and I never thought about it like that. But yeah, I think you're right. And, I, and by the way, it's not like I do it for everyone else. There's some selfishness to it, right? Like it, to me, it subsides my, my anxiety, right? So I think it's okay to admit that and be open to that, like, when I'm when I'm out there and I'm being present, it's not so I'm being an incredible friend or an incredible podcast 
guest. It's it's because I'm nervous about not showing up, and that way it 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 satisfies my anxiety, and that's okay, right? I think ultimately it's okay to admit that. One of the things my brother said at my wedding is he said uh, I would come home every day from work, and we would start. And this would be in my early twenties, and I was living with my bro and. Um, we would like turn on a show and I would fall asleep at like 7.30, right? On the couch. And so one day he asked me, he's like, why are you sleeping so early? It's 7.30. And I told him, um, I, when I'm up and I'm with people, I am 100% present and with them. And that drains me. And at the end of the day, I need to stare at a wall or I need to fall asleep because to your point, it is a muscle that you're constantly working out all day. And if you're not, you know, then, then um, you're just, I don't know, you're not totally there. And I will say that in my business, being on camera, moving people, inspiring people, if you're not a hundred percent there, they sense it. Totally. And you're not going to, you're not going to impact even if it's 99%. I mean, anyone who's listening to this, have you ever felt like someone's not interested? Have you ever seen their eye wander or them look at something else? Or you can just sense they don't want to be there. Like, that is it. If you can crack making the, every time you talk to someone feeling like a hug, that's, that's it. You know what I mean? That's the win. That is the win. And I think that's what we're craving so much these yeah. days is as that connection. And again, this food is, it's that sticky connection. I think I'm going to, connection is one of my core values. And now I'm going to call it sticky connection. <laughs> I think that's it. Um, I, I, you touched a little bit on, on, on getting married and, and parenthood. You know, like for both of us, just you know, yeah. you're you're a child of divorced parents. How has that impacted the way that you show up as a husband and a father? That's a wow, another great one. Um, I've thought a lot about it, and actually, my dad, who raised me, who got divorced from my mom, is not my biological dad. So I, he adopted me. My mom is my biological mom, so I don't know my biological dad. My my dad, who raised me, was incredible. Still is my best friend, and. Um, so there's a lot of influence there, but I but I will say that what I've learned is this: everyone says the same thing to me. And by the way, I am new at this. You're 12 years into this. I'm a total rookie. I'm one year into this. Um, but what everyone says to me is, "You blink and it's over." And and I never understood crying at at movies when kids grow up. I ne just never connected. Now I get it. Right now I totally get it. And so when I look at photos of him nine months ago, ten months ago. I get sad and I'm, where's my little baby, you know, and he's almost walking and all these things. So all I can do in my approach is I prepare for him. I know when he wakes up, I want to be a hundred percent present. I'm not checking emails. I'm not, if, if it's Jonah time, that's his name, then I'm, I'm with Jonah, right? We're playing trucks. My cell phone's nowhere near me. My, my phones are nowhere near me. So I prepare for time with Jonah too. Otherwise, Trust me, the anxiety is going to go off the rails and I'm going to forget and not embrace the, you know, the journey of, of being a dad. So I think that's how I approach being a father, if that makes sense. Yeah, you're bringing in more of that, the passion for presence and connection. What a gift. What a gift. Um, how have you learned to lead and care for yourself as a father? Because it's another mm. thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. For me, it's it's space. Um, I can't hover over him. I, you know, my wife too, you know, I'm only a good husband if I am able to take care of myself. We, we all say, I say, Angelina, who's my wife, I say, you are number one in your life. Um, and, and I think there's this cliche to say that, 
you know, your partner should be number one, right? And let's be honest, if, if someone was going to ask me who should die first, I'll take the bullet. But but when it comes to everyday life, I put myself first because then I can't put Angelina first and then we can't put Jonah first. And so we are really comfortable with that. And if I'm not taking care of myself, if I don't get my meditation time, if I don't get my time to prepare, if I don't get my space, if I don't get those things, and we all suffer. And so um, I respect when they need it too. If Angelina needs just a night away and with her buddies, and uh, I'm, I'm believe, totally get it. And so I think it's the respectfulness of, you know, not everyone works and clicks the way that I do. And so for me, um, it's about respecting everyone's need to recharge and, and do what they need to do to prepare for, the, for having energy to show up. I really, I really appreciate how you're befriending your anxiety has not only helped you, you know, lead yourself well, but also help those in your life and those around you lead them well. We're saying, what do you need? There's just such a high value versus what our culture says about just pushing through, sucking it up, mm, trying mm. to be who other people say we should. You're like, mm. it's just, it's like, it's like a non-negotiable. If you don't have- well, I see it with you and Hazel. I see it oh. just the way you talk to Hazel, right? Like you're embracing Hazel for who she yeah. is, how she shows up. You know, why do we try and fit people into a mold that, you know what I mean? Like, I think it's, it, it's just embrace where ne- no one is going to be the same. And you have to, you know, you have to be okay with your differences and accept who you are and celebrate who you are. And that goes back to the vulnerability. Um, don't you think? I, I do. And I just, I'm struck and my husband talk, and I talk about this too, mm-hmm. that, you know, parenting and being parents in a world that kind of says this is the way to be and this is the norm and even my husband who's an educator you know and he's just a genius at what he does he's a rock star but there's this pressure to conform and I think we still succumb to it so I I think okay how can I like we always talk about it it's you know, do you, but it's never okay to hurt yourself or others with your words and your fists. This is one of our core family rules. But some days when it's messy and scrappy, we always, you know, say, I love you. I do not like your choice right now. You love. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's other days, honestly, Joel, where we're just like, we got nothing for you. Please yeah, yeah. just stop. <laughs> Please. We, we just like, whatever, if it's, if it's a meltdown or a hard moment, um, and we're like, I, I'm, I got to tap out. So I, I'm saying it, it, it's hard kind of walking around constantly feeling like misunderstood sometimes, especially if these things are happening in public, because mm. man, do we, will we put so much pressure? I mean, the, there is this pressure for those that are parents or are in charge of younger kids of what's acceptable and what's not. Mm. And, and so as I'm listening to you talk about presence, I am further inspired to push away the noise and just be mm. in the moment, even if it's a beautiful moment or if it's a very difficult, messy moment, totally. that's our, that's our moment. And the other, I don't want the world to have a say to that. I need to just, it's like when we're, you know, whether, even if we're in public, I want to create a little invisible bubble for myself yeah. <laughs> in that moment. And then we deal with it, but you know, we're, it's, it's a hard world. It's, it's a world full of critics and cynics and, yeah. um, and they do it for sport. And so when you care, and so I'm listening to you, when you care about these things and to fight for presence like you do, I think, my gosh, how much our world would look different if we all were fighting for the presence that you fight for, that your anxiety taught you that said, hey, I'll give you some space if you stay in the moment. And I thought, I'm just thinking, dang, this is medicine. 
That's that's totally medicine. And I think that I love the way you frame it as fighting for presence because that's what it is. I don't want anyone to think listening to this that it comes easy to me. No. And it's not it's not a fight. You know, like I have people in my family who are alcoholics. And let me tell you something, they've been clean for 16, 20 years, right? Guess what? Every day is a fight for them to not drink. It doesn't get easy, right? And anxiety is the same way. It's not like I wake up and all of a sudden I figured it out and like I'm inherently like this. No, I have to fight for it. Just like someone who has to fight to stay in shape, right? And so I I love that, fighting for presence. I think that's the right way to put it. And I think that's the right way to show up for yourself and for the people around you. So I agree. I'm on board for that. So I, I want to shift a little bit to talk about the shift you made professionally not too long ago, you left Sir Latab to start some new ventures. I'd love to hear about the day that you decided to leave this amazing job with Sir Latab. Like, what led to that decision? Yeah, a lot led to it, but it was 10 years there. And I think that um, I was learning and taking everything I needed out of it. Um, and they took everything that I could give. And it just felt like kind of the relationship got to an end. And I, the, you know, for me personally, there's something about. And I think cooking does this for me, satisfies this in a lot of way. Something about creating something and looking back on it and being like, I made that. You know, when when I spoon pasta or risotto out onto a plate, that wouldn't have existed unless I put it together. And I had it in my mind and there it is. And I get to taste it, smell it and enjoy it. And so I wanted to do that with my career. You know, I, I wanted to create something mm. um, for me. Wow. And for me... The crux of my career, you know, the first thing I knew was I am like, I read a book and we're talking about leadership here for a bit. I read a book that's called Good to Great. Have you read that one, Rebecca? Ages ago. Uh, ages ago. Yeah. Ages ago. And it's like one of those typical, but the second I left Surlitab, my wife gave it to me um, and I really connected to it. The first thing I connected to was there's five different types of leaders. The fifth type is really the one that should be calling the shots. And I wasn't that type. Um, it really painted like a Bill Gates, like someone who is very methodical, very logical, very, and I'm not, I'm extremely high picture, creative all over the place. And it made me think, and this is obvious, I cannot excel without a partner. I need the other side of it so I can do what I do. And so the first thing I needed to do was find kind of a, a partner and, and someone to kind of bring out the best of me. And so that's, um, that is where I found Michael, who I worked with for a long time, but he's my business manager and he allows me the space to think and do what I need to do. And he makes sure that the logistics get done and you would think, oh, well, and I pay Michael, right? And so you would get nervous that now you're bringing on an employee, but man, we've done more work, more cool things because I, I've invested in that and I'm able to open up and, and kind of explore more. So it seems weird, but um, that's what I found really successful is really being able to recognize where you fall short and employ other people and champion other people to help lift you up. I, I, I think that that's, that that's gold. We're not meant to go it alone. We're just no not. Way. That, that, no way. That expectation. And, but that's a message I got early in my business ownership that if I wasn't doing it all on my own and figuring out that I was a failure, and then I realized like that was like slowly killing me and then sort of getting the right support yeah. and the right team to bring out the best was everything. Are there, are there any surprises as you navigate the transition from Sir Latab into this next chapter in your career that have come up? Yeah, I would say um, it's kind of lonely being the one that has the, the ideas. Um, and, that's, and that's a little bit something that I've talked to other entrepreneurs and other people about. Like, you are the one with that. And so 
all you can do is employ people to help bring it to life and, and build an amazing culture where that happens. But let's not remember, it's got to come from somewhere just like that food idea. And you're the only one that holds that. And that's a lonely feeling. So there's been some wake up calls around just being okay in that space, um, which has been tough. Um, there's been some really big wake up calls around how organized and intentional I need to be with my day and where I put my energy um, and not let the day control me. But to, for me to control the day, the power of no. And the power of, of saying no has is, is been a big lesson for me. So lots, lots. I, I am by no means um, an amazing entrepreneur. And I am I'm hit every bump you can hit. But, um, but I'm trying to lean into the journey and be present in it. And uh, like I said, be prepared with every day and be okay with that. Oh, I mean, the bumps are the baptism of <laughs> entrepreneurship. Ooh, I mean, that's I that's it. the... That's the gig. And perfection says that there's never, it's supposed to be smooth sailing, but anyone who knows, literally, this is the scrappiness of running your own business. And, and, and I I think you, you hit something on the loneliness of thought leadership too, of, well, no one else gets this. How do I help communicate this and download this so others can get excited about it? And that before you get that point, it's, it's sitting with that yourself and celebrating yourself. And that's kind of the presence. I'm just sitting as I'm talking this through, it's just having presence with those ideas and the vision, even and being present with that internally before others can catch on and how to hang in there. Because loneliness, loneliness can really devastate um, innovation and creativity. It is heavy. Absolutely. Heavy. And that's why I think surrounding yourself with people is also a really amazing thing to do. Um, And you'll be surprised at how many people want to be surrounded by you as well and how you complement their skills. But I think that, um, you know, uh, I, I just totally agree on kind of, you know, the turbulent times are the times and being in business is about problem. Like, you know, what I'm learning is, and what really stuck with me, Danny Meyer, a restaurateur said, he said, um, you know, he would come to his grandpa with all these problems about owning restaurants and building restaurants in New York. He goes, God, I have so many issues. And his, and his grandpa just said, yeah, that's called business. That's called that's called entrepreneurship. So, so it's like that is entrepreneurship. It's just how well you tackle problems. At no point is it just you sitting in a chair twiddling your thumbs. And so, being okay with the mess, you know, leaning into it. And it's for me, it's you know, going back to the kid. There's anxiety when I see toys everywhere. There's anxiety when I'm in the kitchen. There's anxiety when I'm on in front of four million people. But you know what? If you don't lean into it, then you might as well just curl up on the couch. And just not move and and have and so you have to lean into it and know that it's messy for all of us. You are not alone. Yeah, I, I think this is actually essential because I see so much um, na- a narrative in the entrepreneur space, the business space, so trying to hack out the messy, hack right, out the right. difficult, and I just call BS to it. That's sterile. That's not creative. That's trying to engineer anything hard out, but that's. That's just not real. That's robotic. And that's doing a disservice so that it, the message is, oh my gosh, I'm a mess because I'm struggling is, wow, I'm having a hard day because I'm daring to show up and do what I love. And learn. Totally agree. And totally agree. It's this narrative out there is really doing harm. So I love that you're pushing back on that. And it's just essential, but it, it's, it still sucks when you're in it though. There's just. No oh, it sucks so bad. And I'm so bad at, you know, I've been told I'm like a boat that just speeds at the speed of light and make giant wakes and everyone, you know, is bouncy in those wakes. And so how do I slow my boat down? How do I not create such big issues for everybody? 
Um, and that takes, uh, you know, I feel like I'm on school, kindergarten in that world. So if anyone's listening to this, you can help me with that. You know, I think that's uh, all I do at night is read books right now around how to be a better leader and how to, I watch documentaries. I, I send clips to friends and colleagues and I am in learning zone. And if I'm not in learning zone, I, again, I'm kind of back on that couch, you know, like I have to be progressing and, and that progression will be forever. So. And I think that learning zone is is essential because it's lifelong, right? To think that we're going to exactly. learn and then coast. I For some reason, I kind of thought by like 25, I'd have it all figured <laughs> out. And I'm like, oh, wait, some people haven't graduated emotionally, emotionally graduated middle school. So I have to navigate that. And oh, wait, I'm growing and changing. <laughs> As I oh, so, yeah. So I want to make sure we talk about your passion for decreasing food waste, especially in the yeah. backdrop of all we're experiencing right now in our country and in our world with COVID and social unrest. So talk to me about Cooking Scrappy and your 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 deep passion for de- decre- decreasing food waste while we're navigating all these things. Yeah. And here's the bottom line, Rebecca, you know, we almost waste half the food we produce in America, which is bazillions of dollars of food. And it's one of the number one causes of, of global climate change. And, um, and then meanwhile, one out of five people in America go to bed, not knowing where their next meal is coming from. So we're wasting a zillion, zillion, zillion pounds of food. And then people go to bed hungry. And so that's what really didn't line up for me. And I felt like as a chef, People weren't looking at what they were throwing away. They were just kind of throwing things away. So my job and a lot of what I do and what I'm really passionate about is um, is really making the unsexy sexy. How do I make a carrot top interesting? How do I make um, chicken bones cool? How do I make a floppy carrot, you know, um, uh, just as great as a ribeye? And so I've kind of devoted my cooking career to inspiring people to look at the underdogs as ingredients and and make the most of them. So that's why I say cooking scrappy. It's you know it's all the scraps, all the things that you might think of. It's the back of the fridge. It's it's um, the overlooked, the bruised, and uh, we stand up for them and celebrate them the way we do anything. I, I love that because I have a feeling there's a lot of people listening to this that are gonna who have felt like an underdog, and so we're just aligning with the underdogs of food. But while we're doing that, we're helping our planet and we're helping those that are food insecure. And it is amazing how much we take for granted. This hard stop of COVID, I think, brought these things oh. to the surface next level. Which has been, yeah, which has been interesting for me. My my following has grown 500% since COVID. And so people, you know, before COVID, I was talking about cooking scrappy, but now people get it and they're there. And so, uh, you know, it's not a big, I told you so. It's a big, let's do this thing together. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Um, we live in a system that really makes it tough. and so. Um, the most we can do is make the most out of everything we have, which is the same analogy we're talking about now is just being present when you're cooking. Don't throw things away. Put them in your freezer. Come back to them. You can make a beautiful chicken stock, a sauce, an interesting dish. How do you embrace your leftovers? How do you make the most out of what you're given? Because when our parents got divorced, we could have either curled up like a ball or we could have kept going. And there's a reason why they say, you know, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. It's the same thing. So um, I approach the ingredients the same way I approach everyday life. So then how do you think cooking a cooking scrappy mindset can make us better leaders? Yeah, I think it's making the most out of out of what you're given. So I think if you're starting out like I am, I'm starting a new business called Homemade, which is all about virtual events. You know, we don't have big budgets. We didn't raise millions of dollars. So this is what we have, right? And our virtual events are shot on webcams and, you know, 
that's okay. That's being scrappy. You know, it's I, I my studio I film in, it's my garage. It's something I already have. It's something I overlooked. And so um, my garage is an is a analogy for a banana peel, right? It's I have a banana peel. I can either throw it away or turn it, soak it into maple syrup and make banana peel bacon. So, um, you know, it's up to you. So as, as a leader, if you're not using everything you have, you're throwing away profit, potential, and, uh, and a means to success. So cooking scrappy is leading scrappy. Same thing. I love it. I love it. Joel, where can my listeners find you if they want to connect with you and learn more from you? Absolutely. You can go to my website, which is joelgamron, G-A-M-O-R-A-N.com. Um, if you ever have anything at home that you don't know what to do, you can uh, email me and there's a link on there and you can say, hey, I have pasta and I have chicken, I have broccoli. What do I make? It's called Scrap Your Fridge. So that's a service I do totally for free just to help you kind of come up with what to make for dinner that night. Um, and then if you're ever interested in kind of doing a virtual event where you're cooking with an amazing chef and, and really having an incredible experience in the kitchen, that stickiness, um, I'm really excited to launch Homemade, which is on October 1st with some amazing chefs. And that's going to be at withhomemade.com. Oh, congratulations. And then people can find you Thank on you. social media. Yeah, what's at your Joel handle? Gamron. Yep. At Joel Gamron, my name. And then you can find my book anywhere you can find books at Amazon and you can watch Scraps on Hulu. So you can check it out there. We love scraps. Joel, <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about this this conversation for quite some time, and I, I can't wait to, to unpack it with my family and my colleagues. So I'm so grateful for you, for your heart, for your leadership. Thank you so much that you, for keep showing up. Um, the world needs you. The world needs your leadership and your presence. So thank you for modeling that to us, and thank you for your time today. So grateful. Oh, thank you, Rebecca. And thanks for being an amazing advocate throughout the journey. And uh, these are questions that I've never really been asked before and, and a platform that I've never really been able to talk about. So uh, it was cathartic, amazing and inspiring for me as well. Jill Gameron modeled presence in the face of his anxiety with such clarity and authenticity. In our conversation, he reminded us often that a commitment to presence is a lifelong practice that is imperfect, but consistent and intentional. He unpacked how befriending his anxiety reframed the judgments and shame towards the burdens of his anxiety and offered a roadmap on how to best care for himself, his loved ones, and his team so he can show up with deep presence and excellence. And he also taught us that scrappy leadership models the truth of the messy, the human, the real aspect of doing life and business all in vulnerabilities and all. Seeing anxiety as a gift as Joel does, not bypassing the pain of it through befriending and leading it, is radical. It is also a game changer for how we lead. The leaders who can run the marathon of living this life with challenges, growth edges, deep uncertainty, grief, and all the other big emotions do this deep work and also befriend their unique tenderness around experiencing anxiety. What do you think about the mindset of befriending or building a relationship with your anxiety? In what ways has the anxiety you've experienced been a gift and a teacher? And, and where do you want more presence in your life? What additional support do you need to help you lead and unburden your anxiety so it does not continue to lead you or weigh you down? Inspired from a place of excellence and not fear of perfection, Building practices that support you showing up as your best requires commitment, practice, and conviction. 
And in a world that is fighting for your attention, your energy, and your resources, presence in the face of vulnerability is indeed quite powerful. Yes, please get the support you need. Do not suffer in silence or white knuckle anxiety. It is essential to do the work to unburden the pain and the shame around anxiety. And anxiety wants to just eradicate all discomfort. Unburdened leaders learn how to lead through it. Befriending your anxiety and other difficult emotions means developing practices that do no harm, get you results and relief, build resilience, and deepen your capacity to lead yourself and others well. Unburdened leader coaching experiences may be just the support you need right now in your work, in your life, and in your leadership. In our work together, you will dig deep into the pillars of unburdened leadership, trauma-informed practices, self-leadership, bold boundaries, shame resilience, and creativity. And in our work, we'll develop the six qualities of an unburdened leader, presence, power, persistence, playfulness, patience, and perspective. This is the work needed to go to the next level of growth, to navigate big changes, and expand your capacity to lead, no matter what curveballs are thrown your way. Go to www.rebeccaching.com backslash unburdened dash leadership. Enter your email address and you will be led to a place to schedule your free connection call and begin your journey with unburdened leader coaching. Thank you so much for joining this episode of the unburdened leader. You can find this episode show notes, ways to connect with Joel and also his cooking scrappy joy along with free unburdened leader resources and ways to work with me at rebeccaching.com. 